Today on Bread for the Broken with James Grizzle, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Galveston. Micah's just kind of like, he's living this out as this little minor prophet who's been faithfully serving the Lord for 30 years and gets an opportunity to write seven chapters in the Bible through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's just like, man, we are so busted. We are so guilty. We, we just, we don't deserve this, but God is going to, we are going to reap what we sow. However, there's a rescuer coming. There's a rescuer coming. Fortune tellers try and tell you what's going to happen in the future, right? Well, to be specific, they try to convey a message as if God has spoken to them. Imagine with me that Judah and Israel had some prophets in their day as well one of which Pastor James is going to talk about today. Of course, the prophet Micah is legit on the foundation of Christ, and fortune tellers are totally not. Basically, Micah tells the people that God's judgment will come to them because of their sin, but also in the same breath, he's bringing hope through restoration. Now here's Pastor James in the book of Micah chapter 5, with today's edition of Bread for the Broken. Micah chapter 5, here's the goal. Chapter 5, 6, and 7 really just kind of all go together. So our goal is to go through these last three chapters. There's not a, a ton of verses, you know, with each one of these. It's 15, 16, and then the last one's 20 verses. But this, this is like the end of Micah's message. And he kind of hits this crescendo in chapter 5 with like this messianic prophecies. And then kind of jumps back into a courtroom scenario and then kind of goes back into like looking beyond the horizon for prophetic type stuff. So chapter five, chapter five has got one of the, the coolest little prophetic verses that we, we look back as absolutely fulfilled and completed. Okay, so look at verse one of chapter five it says mobilize, marshal your troops. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. They will strike the leaders, the Israel's leader in the face with a rod. All right. So just real quick in verses one, one and two, we're going to, we're going to contrast two different cities. Okay. You got mighty Jerusalem and oh little town of Bethlehem. Okay. Um, two distinct cities. One is just a small podunk town outside of Jerusalem and one is the capital city, Jerusalem. But note, the first, in verse 1, it's the enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. They're striking its leader in the face with a rod, like it's being taken over. But, verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathath, Ephrathath, however you say that, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. So here we have the verse that lets us know Jesus is coming from Bethlehem. Uh, but for the believer, we know like this, this spurs into our, our minds and our hearts, Bethlehem, little insignificant Bethlehem. What good could come from Bethlehem? Now, that's not the reference, I understand, but you understand what I'm saying. Like, little town of Bethlehem comes the mightiest ruler of all, of all. 
And here, here Micah is, so this is kind of like a, a double fulfillment prophecy, okay? So he's, some of the rest of this chapter, he's going to be looking at things that are going to be fulfilled in his time frame, but he also is looking beyond the horizon, understanding like, I think this, there's more to this, what the Lord is showing me. It's kind of what he's, it, most of the prophets back then were like, I can see what's, for some of them were like immediate events that were about to happen. They hadn't happened yet, but they, were, they could see the fulfillment of them. But they also knew like the Spirit is telling me this message and probably this is going to be fulfilled maybe in my lifetime, but I also know there's a double thing to this that's going to be fulfilled way beyond my lifetime. And this is what Micah is seeing he, he knows that it, from Bethlehem, there's going to rise up a ruler, a ruler who is going to like liberate people, set people free. So he knows that there was going to be deliverance from Assyria, but beyond the horizon, in the dim distance, there's a majestic messianic king. The king is going to be showing up, right? Like he's coming, okay? So he, he sees this, and this is what's going to encourage him from, for the rest of the letter. Verse 3 says, the people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at, at last, his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land, and he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength. And in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world, and he will be the source of peace. Yes. Okay, so... He's just seeing is like, oh, man, this is, this is the one. This is the one we've been looking for. The rest of verse 5, he says, When the Assyrians invade our land and break through our defenses, we will appoint seven rulers to watch over us, eight princes to lead us. They will rule Assyria with drawn swords and enter the gates in the land of Nimrod. He will rescue us from the Assyrians when they pour over the borders to invade our land. So this is that double prophecy thing that he's seeing. Like, I know the bad guys are coming. Like, we know they're coming. They're coming to take us over. And he knows, like, God will deliver. God will rescue. Because he, he just, he always rescues his people. But he's able to see even beyond his current status and see, like, even in the end, the Lord's going to show up and rescue us. Which is really vital to, to your walk and to my walk is because the enemy will show up in our lives and it'll be on the immediate horizon, and you just feel like you're surrounded, and you got all these attacks coming against you, and you know, like, I know the Lord can come through for me. But we also know, we carry, this is what, you know, differentiates Christianity from everything else. We also know beyond our lives, the ultimate rescue is coming. It is coming. Like, you might be rescued from certain situations and problems in your lives and all that stuff. We know the Lord is faithful to do that, but ultimately, a great rescue is on the way, okay? And so Micah's just kind of like, he's living this out as this little minor prophet who's been faithfully serving the Lord for 30 years and gets an opportunity to write seven chapters in the Bible through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's just like, man, we are so busted. We are so guilty. We, we just, we don't deserve this, but God is going to, we are going to reap what we sow, However, there's a rescuer coming. There's a rescuer coming. So now he goes into the the rest of this, verse 7. Then the remnant left in Israel, because there's always a remnant. We've talked about this a lot. There's always a remnant. will take their place among the nations. 
They will be like the dew sent by the Lord or like rain falling on the grass. It will be everywhere. No one can hold back. No one can restrain. The remnant left in Israel will take their place among the nations. They will be like a lion among the animals of the forest, like a strong young lion among the flocks of sheep and goats, pouncing and tearing as they go with no rescuer in sight. The people of Israel will stand up to their foes and all their enemies will be wiped out. In that day, says the Lord, I will slaughter your horses and destroy your chariots and tear down your walls and demolish your defenses. I will put an end to all witchcraft. There will be no more fortune tellers. I will destroy all your idols, sacred pillars, so you will never again worship, with, uh, worship the work of your own hands. I will abolish all your idol shrines and their Asheroth poles and destroy your pagan cities. I will pour out my vengeance on all the nations that refuse to obey me. So the, the last part of that, Micah is letting us know that, look, the Lord's going to set everything straight. He's going to set everything straight. And the purging or the purifying that's going to happen is going to start with his people. It's going to start with his people. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but you and I are still in the process of needing purification. Okay? Because there's, there, he's always digging around in this thing, and he's always exposing idols that I, I, sometimes I didn't even know were buried down deep in there. And then sometimes I did know that they were there because I hid them in there. Okay? He's always, he's doing this, but he wants to purify. He wants to draw these things out of us. And so what he was doing for Israel is what he wants to do for his people today. It's what he wants to do for his people today. And it is always fascinating that post-Babylon, these things were not really happening that much in Israel anymore. They just weren't. Now, they were far from perfect. They went the other extreme, where pre-Babylon, they were like totally liberal in their worship of anything and everything. Coming out of Babylon, they swung way over to this other side where they became legalistic. And so legalistic that my goodness, I mean, it was, there was just like, if you, don't, if you don't measure out, you know, the exact, or if you don't count your steps, you know, if you take one step beyond what we think is the proper amount on the Sabbath, then you've broken the law and you're done. This is it. Like they went from one extreme to the other extreme, but to their credit and really to confirm that the, the word of God comes true. These, this list that I just read through, that wasn't happening really that much in Israel. Now, could there have been pockets of it? Of course, of course. However, by and large, the Asheroth poles, you weren't going to find those anymore, not in the, not in the main worship centers in Israel. Temples and, and things like that set up for Baal, that wasn't going to be hap- that wasn't happening anymore. So we, they were pur- purged or they were purified, so to speak, but then the problem was, they went to the other extreme, and it was all about the law, and there was no grace, no grace at all, which, ironically, that's kind of what we're going through in the book of Romans, where you're dealing with a bunch of like self-righteous people who are like always looking down their nose at other people. If you don't act like I think you should act, then you're a sinner, and you should just be done away with. And you're like, that doesn't sound like Jesus to me. That sounds like legalism. And I don't want license, nor do I want legalism. I want grace and mercy, and I want to just be like Joshua. Don't go to the right, don't go to the left, just stay straight. Just go down the middle, stay in the Word of God. 
and be dispensers of grace and mercy and love. Oh, yeah, and truth. And truth. Okay? So he sets that all up just to go into back into the courtroom scenario in chapter 6. Okay? So you're going to have first five verses are all the indictment again. And then you got six through eight is this confession. And then the, the latter part of it is the sentence, okay? So that's how this chapter breaks down. So let's read through the first five verses here. It says, stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. Number one, if you, if you got any complaints against God, you're going to lose, okay? You, you just, no, no complaint against God is valid, okay? It's just not, all right? If you don't believe me, read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Okay? No complaints against God when they just don't. They, they, we already know. We've already gone through the first five chapters of Micah. They don't have a leg to stand on. God is not at fault. The people are at fault. And God's like, all right, bring your case against me. Let's hear what you got. He's like, I'm going to call the mountains to be your witnesses, <laughs> you know, to, to hear what you have to say. Here's the Lord's like, now let me, let me tell you my complaint. Now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. Oh, his complaint against you is always valid, all right? It's just always valid, okay? If, he, if the Lord has something that he brings up to you in your life, he didn't get it wrong. He's not misreading anything, okay? So if the Lord convicts you of something, he never has to come back to us and say, you know what, my bad. I thought you were doing this. Turns out you weren't. Because if he ever says that, then he's not God, Okay? So if there's ever a conviction for something, that means you're guilty of it because God knows what he's doing. So he's got this complaint against them. He says he has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember my people? How King Balak of Moab tried to have you curse, and how Balaam, the son of Beor, blessed you and said, we just went through that in Numbers. God's like, don't you remember? And I love it when the Lord does this for us, because constantly he's calling us back to just remember, just remember, just push pause. I know life might not be going your way right now. But just push pause on the complaining and remember what God has done for you. And don't grow tired of him. This is his accusation. He's like, what, what have I done to make you tired of me? And that's a sad thing for God Almighty to say to his people, like, what did I do to make you grow tired of me? He hasn't done anything. In fact, if anything, it's the people who have forgotten his faithfulness. His faithfulness. Remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness, right? So that's the indictment. And then here's their, their confession after hearing this. What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring to him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearly calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? That's a no, just in case you want to know. And here's the answer. 
No. This is a common verse. This is one you're going to find at Mardell's stitched or printed on anything and everything, right? Like you might have a coffee mug that has this verse on there. But this is the context, okay? So this verse should mean a whole lot more to us when we understand God is standing before his people saying, what did I do? What did I ever do to you to make you turn your back on me? I went out of my way to prove my faithfulness to you guys. And then it convicts them. And then you get to verse 8, and there it says, No, O people, the Lord has what? Told you. Meaning, that's a past tense reference. He has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That is not a road to salvation. That is a road of relationship, okay? Doing these things does not get you into heaven. Doing these things mean that you love God, that you love God and he means something to you. Do what's right. Do what you know is right. That means you, obviously, that means you turn away from what you know is wrong. Love mercy. Mercy is God's, you got grace, which is his unmerited favor, and his mercy is him like not giving to you what you deserve. We should all love that. If you have the right mindset that is, what, humble. Because if you're prideful, you're arrogant, you're like, well, I mean, he should be giving me like a ton of stuff because I'm pretty awesome, right? Like, I'm, Lord, I'm killing this thing. I'm, I'm nailing it. Like, no, what, what I deserve is, you know, all this stuff. And he's like, well, what you deserve is to get squashed. So you should walk humbly with your God, realizing who you really are in the presence of a holy God. Do what is right, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And then here's, here's the, the sentence, so to speak. Fear the Lord if you're wise. His voice calls to everyone in Jerusalem. The armies of destruction are coming. The Lord is sending them. Like you've sowed into this, now you have to reap. The armies are already on their way. So fear the Lord. Verse 10, what shall I say about the homes of the wicked filled with treasures gained by cheating? What about the disgusting practice of measuring out grain with dishonest measures or taking advantage of people? How can I tolerate your merchants who use dishonest scales and weights? The rich among you have become wealthy through extortion and violence. Your citizens are so used to lying that their tongues can no longer tell the truth. This is the sentence from God, and God's just like, I, I can't put up, put up with your wickedness anymore. And, it, and it's gotten to the point where it's like, even individuals who know, like, I know this is truth, but I can't say anything but a lie. Like, this is how, how upside down it has become. And what's, what's always fascinating about this is it, it never fails. Like, I don't watch a lot of the news, but when I do, I see this practice all the time. Usually it's with politicians or guys who are being interrogated by Congress who might be in charge of some three, you know, abbreviated letter thing. I don't want to say anything because it might get me in trouble. I don't know. But you're like watching them say it. And it's like, it's almost as if you can't say the truth. Like, you know, it's there when they ask you questions, but they will go all the way around to like, and I'm like, mm, this, I think I just read about this in the Bible. Oh, wait, I did. You're so used to lying that their tongues can no longer tell the truth. Verse 13, therefore, I will wound you. I will bring you to ruin for all your sins. 
You will eat but never have enough. Your hunger pains and emptiness will remain. And though you try to save your money, it will come to nothing in the end. You will save a little, but I will give it to those who conquer you. You will plant crops, but not harvest them. You will press your olives, but not get enough oil to anoint yourselves. You will trample the grapes, but get no juice to make your wine. You keep only the laws of the evil king Omri, and you follow only the example of, of wicked king Ahab. Omri and Ahab were two of the wicked, most wicked kings of Israel. Therefore, I will make an example of you, bringing you to complete ruin. You will be treated with contempt, mocked by all who see you. Now you read through this, this sentence, and your thought process should be, that's too much. And that's the point especially for us on this side of the cross and empty tomb. Looking back and reading through some of these Old Testament passages where you're just like, oh my goodness, this is... Now, when you understand the context and the histor- you know, all the historical elements to these stories of just the, the depravity that the people of God were just throwing themselves fully into, you can understand like, well, you're kind of getting what you deserve, but man, this is, this is a lot. Here's what I want to kind of phrase out for you. When you read through this, just envision Jesus on the cross. Because all of this punishment that was deserving of us was poured out onto him. Like all of this was like what Jesus took upon himself for the sake of my sins. For the sake of my sins. And I look at this list and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just... I'm going to wound you. Well, he was wounded for my transgressions. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was, he was mocked tremendously. All of this, and when they see, like, this is the consequences of sin. This is the consequences of decisions made by individuals and by a people who are supposed to represent God to all nations. And they failed at that. And they failed at that completely, just mean in the, in the worst way possible. And God's like, okay, so I'm going to send in the, the enemies to destroy you, to take you away captive. So I, I would always encourage you as you're reading through some of these passages and you see some of this stuff that like it's this judgment that gets poured out onto his people, just always, always, always understand that, man, judgment was poured out onto Jesus for your sins. He took them all. He took it all. He took it all for you and for myself. So what we deserved, he took freely. And man, I just, hopefully, I mean, hopefully that humbles us, but also encourages us. They're like, yeah, I mean, I fit this, I fit within this list. Like, there's no doubt about it. Like, what they were guilty of, I do as well. I do as well. I may not have like an Asherah pole in my backyard, right? Which I don't, by the way, I don't. Just one giant palm tree and a china berry tree. And, but we're not dancing around the thing at all. We're not doing any of that stuff. But that doesn't mean that these idols haven't, haven't at some point in time occupied space within my heart and within my mind. And God would have every right to do the same thing to me that he did to Israel. Except Jesus stepped in. He stepped in my place and he he took all that for for me and for you. And and it's beautiful and it's amazing. Hope to 
Compassionate and loving are just a few descriptions of God. Did you know that in the Minor Prophets, he's also described as just? Israel and Judah thumbed their noses at God by making him unimportant in their lives. They gave in to their own desires, did what they wanted, and despaired in tough situations. All of this caused them to forget God as their protector and provider. Why is it so easy to do those things that, in the long run, aren't good for us? More than I care to admit, I see myself doing those same things, over and over. God was patient with them, and He's patient with me. But there comes a point when a reality check is needed. Jesus draws the line between white and black, wrong and right, judging actions and motives. Thankfully, He doesn't leave us in that rotten state. He offers us forgiveness and hope. You've been listening to Bread for the Broken with Pastor James Grizzle. Pastor James has been teaching through a series called Major Messages from the Minor Prophets. Each message professed by the prophets reveals his abundant patience, his faithfulness, and also his justice. If you missed one or more of these teachings, I encourage you to go back and listen to them again at breadforthebroken.com. Just click on the Listen tab. We'd love for you to come join us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Our prayer is that you're encouraged and rest in the confidence that Jesus will right every wrong. Be sure to tune in next time as Pastor James continues here on Bread for the Broken. Let me paint the picture of you.